If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi and chapter 3. If you don't know where Malachi is, go to Matthew and turn left, okay? And you will be at Malachi. It is the final book of the Old Testament. Um, should be one or two pages to the left of Matthew there in your Bibles. And we are going to be in verses 13 in chapter 3 to verse 6 of chapter 4. <coughs> Malachi three thirteen through 4, 6. If you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen of my translation this morning. I'll be reading out the CSB, the Christian Standard uh, Version. Malachi 3, starting in verse 13. Let's read this together. God's word says, Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Now, not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of the armies. My own possession on the day that I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Verse 1 of chapter 4. For look, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. You will trample the wicked, for there will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instructions of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Amen. This is God's word, and may God write secure and truth in all of our hearts. Everyone loves stories that have happy endings, yes? Any teacher of literature will tell you that the key to good storytelling is that every story must have a resolution. And the simplest, most satisfying way to end a good story is with an ending that will not only resolve the conflict but one that gives the audience warm feelings and satisfaction. What people don't want is to invest time and emotional energy into a story, whether a book, TV, series, or movie, only for the conflict to either never be resolved or find that the hero or protagonist doesn't win in the end. Dark endings to stories would not be favorably received by audiences because there's something inherent in us that demands something of justice. To see and know that good triumphs and evil falls in the finale. Think of uh, some of your favorite movies, for example. And imagine if they didn't have satisfying endings. And since it's Christmas time, let's think of some classic Christmas movies. Let's imagine if they had different endings than what we got. So imagine if in It's a Wonderful Life. You remember that movie, yes? Please tell me. That movie's been out forever. You must have seen it. George Bailey is discovered, let's say... 
If he had been discovered to have hidden the money from his uncle, then the bank examiner finds it, and George thinks he's going to jail, and that his company will collapse, and he wished he had never been born, and then Clarence visits him, and George sees what life would have been like if he'd never been born. And he's unmoved, and ends up running away. And then the credits roll. What would you think of that? No one would hail it as one of the greatest Christmas movies if that had happened that way, right? What if it, the Grinch steals all things from the people of Whoville, and they lament their lack of material goods instead of singing, and the Grinch never changes his heart, and he just dumps all of their Christmas stuff into the ravine, and then the movie ends? What would you think of that? What if uh, in Elf, Buddy's dad never accepted him and continued to be a greedy fat cat that was callous towards his son's? And Buddy's love interest rejected him to boot. What if uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, and can we agree the Muppets Christmas Carol is the best version of the Christmas Carol? It is a cinematic classic, my friends. A masterpiece. Should I keep going? Uh, What if Scrooge never changed his ways? And he continued to be a greedy grump who rejected the overtures of the ghosts that visited him. That would not be satisfying. What if, lastly, in an all-time classic Christmas movie, Die Hard, Hans Gruber takes the hostages up to the roof and he succeeds in blowing them up and John McClane fails to rescue them with his estranged wife and then Hans Gruber escapes successfully in all the confusion like he had planned. Wouldn't that be an all-time Christmas bummer? You get the point. We want the happily ever after. And we'd feel somewhat cheated if it, at the end of an epic story there was only darkness. The book we turn our attention to this morning is the last book of the Old Testament. It's the last word before God is seemingly silent for over 400 years. It is the book that ends this era and caps off the story that begun in Genesis 1. It went through this story, went through covenants and promises and and floods and plagues and seas parting and bread from heaven and water from rock and God in cloud and fire with quaking mountains and tablets, giants being slain and temples being built and lion's dens and great fish and fiery furnace. And with all these epic adventures and twists and turns, you think it's all headed to an epic conclusion. Is that what we get in the book of Malachi? Upon first glance, it doesn't seem so. Malachi does not appear to be a satisfying and epic conclusion one would expect at the end of the Old Testament. There appears to be no happily ever afters in this book. In fact, not only is the vast majority of this four-chapter book bad news, but it also, did you notice, ends with a curse. This ending has made people in history so uncomfortable that they would read chapter 4, verse 5, and then verse 6, and then they'd read verse 5 again in order to not finish the book with a curse. Even the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint reverses the last two verses so that the Old Testament ends with a blessing instead of a curse. But no matter what kind of arranging we might be inclined to do, the fact remains Malachi is an honest book. That might be something of a grim reminder of the human condition. But it is a reminder we need. And it's a reminder we need if we're going to understand the significance and the gravity of what Christmas means. What is Christmas about? If you were to take a poll, you'd surely get a variety of answers. Isn't Christmas about family? Is it about receiving and giving gifts? Isn't it about maintaining traditions? Isn't it about warm feelings and nostalgia? Most answers would be positive, wouldn't they? 
In the midst of all the positive thinking we want to pump out for Christmas, the fact remains, without acknowledging the context in which Jesus came to earth, we will miss its true significance. We want to be positive at Christmas, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We want the sights and smells and sounds that remind us of the good times we've had before. We want the harmless baby nestled in our nativity scenes on the soft cushion of a wood bassinet, where even though he's a baby, for some reason, we sing, no crying he makes. But unless we reckon with the reason for Christ's coming, we'll miss what Christmas is actually about. We'll we'll miss the gravity of what the Bible declares. We'll miss the necessity of this event. We'll forget in the eggnog and the tearing of wrapping paper and the laughter that this is one of the most cataclysmic events in the history of the universe. That no matter how inoffensive we want to make it, Christmas is declaring something confronting that few want to admit. This is why this morning we turned to a book that you may not have interacted with much, Malachi. Whether our dear prophet realizes it or not, he's telling us why Christmas was necessary and what Christmas declares. And he does it nearly a half a millennium before the first Christmas. The context in which Malachi preaches is eerily familiar one. This is what A.W. Hill says of it. He says, the prophet Malachi preached to a diverse audience. His sermons were directed to the disillusioned, the cynical, the callous, the dishonest, the apathetic, the doubting, the skeptical, and the outright wicked in post-exilic Judah. Yet as a sensitive pastor, Malachi offered the valentine of God's love to a disheartened people. We know less about Malachi than we do any other prophet. We don't know where he's from. We don't know how God called him. We don't know who his father was. We do know that he was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, and thus he preached God's message to the people after they returned from Babylonian exile and after the temple and walls around Jerusalem were rebuilt. We know that the people returned from captivity with high expectations of material prosperity and flourishing in the land. Perhaps even the Messiah would finally come. But their expectations were not met in a way they wanted, which led them to apathy, laxity, and death orthodoxy. Things were as dark as they could be as they forsook their covenant with the Lord that they had renewed only a few years prior and rebelled against him at seemingly every turn. It's in this context that God calls the prophet named Malachi to preach to them. And what's interesting about this book is if you read it from cover to cover, Malachi doesn't break any new ground. The people are doing things they've done before in which their forefathers were rebuked by some other prophet. They have been graciously loved by a holy God, and they have fallen back into pagan marriages and idolatry, profane worship, and more. Everyone from the priest to the people were guilty. Times were truly dark. This book is divided into what's called six disputations in which in each one, God comes to them with a complaint. They answer his complaint, and then God gives them a final rebuke, and it is in the final of the six disputations that we drop in today. So in the remainder of our time, this is what we'll do, okay? Two points, okay? Why Christmas was necessary and what Christmas announces, okay? That's what we'll do in our remaining time. So first, why Christmas was necessary. We must begin with the most important truth that this book declares. Remember, God is called Malachi because the people are far from God. They are doing what Israel has done from the beginning, which is spurn the grace of God to fall again into sin. If you have your copy of God's word, just go back to the first chapter of Malachi. 
See how it begins. A pronouncement. Chapter 1, verse 1, a pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, what does it say? I have, I have loved you, says the Lord. God loves people. That thought alone should astound us because the people of Judah were as bad as you could get. Yet where does God start? I love you. Let's mention again something we touched on briefly last week. In Deuteronomy 7, remember we talked about this. God gives Israel the explanation for why he chose them. He chose them because he loves them. You remember that? And he tells them, it's not because you are more numerous than other nations. You're not better than they are or more moral, any such thing. He says simply, I love you because I love you. If they ask God, God, why do you love us? His answer would be what? Because I love you. So think if your kids or grandkids came up to you with the same question. And they came up to you and said, why do you love me? If you say, I love you because I'm your parent, well, that won't do because then you're essentially saying what? I love you because I have an obligation to do so. If they ask, why do you love me? And you said some characteristic about them. I love you because you're smart. I love you because you're talented. I love you because you're good at this or that. That wouldn't do either. Because then you'd be saying that you love them because of something they've done to earn it. The implication of that would be that if they weren't good at those things, you wouldn't love them. Even if you said, I love you because you make me happy, or you make me laugh, or you bring me joy, then your love would actually be, have selfish motives. You'd be saying, I love you because you provide me with something. There's only one way to truly answer that question, isn't there? Circularly. It must be, I love you because what? Because I love you. Only then will the reason for love be unconditional and self-giving. And this is how God loves. He could not love us because we merited his love, because we did nothing of the sort. In fact, the argument is made in Malachi, we've only given him reason to not love us. He could not love us because we provide something to him, for he lacks nothing. If God is to love us, it must be because why? He loves us. As Charles Spurgeon said, God must have found the cause of his love in his own heart. He could not have found it in us, for it is not there. And because God loves us, he thus wants what's best for us. Do we agree on this? You know what the problem is, though, right? Even though God wants what's best for us, we don't want what's best for us. Not truly. Not only that, we become ungrateful towards God and spurn his grace. If you still have your, your Bible open to chapter 1, how do the people respond to God's declaration, I have loved you? Can you believe this? They ask, how have you loved us? What an incredibly tone-deaf question. Are they that forgetful? Is not the Old Testament essentially a story of a pursuing and gracious God who continually saves a people only for them to rebel and fail? And even when they fail, God is patient and long-suffering and abounding in steadfast love. That's the Old Testament, is it not? Is redemption history not littered with God being kind to the people of Israel who, in turn, go and worship idols and cast off God's good and holy statutes? Over and over and over and over again, God is gracious to these people, and they know their history. They know how God had rescued them out of Egypt and put them in the land of promise and graciously dwelt among them and put, put up with them, and how even when he sent them to exile, he promised who, they would have a remnant who would return. 
And these people in Malachi are the fruit of that. And they still have the audacity to ask, how have you loved us exactly? But then look again. Go, go, go back to chapter 3 to our text. God says, your words against me are harsh. And what do they ask? What have we spoken against you? And what is it that they said? They said, verse 14, it's useless to serve God. They said, what have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? You see what they did? God said, I loved you. I rescued you. Here are commands in which to serve me instead of Pharaoh, instead of the Baals, and for your good always. And the people said, what's in it for us? They said that serving God was useless. They said it was vain. They said it was a waste of time. Then they said, we went through the motions of repentance, and we walked around sad, and it didn't pay off because we expected you to give us blessings for our heartless worship. Now, at this point, you are asking, how does this show us why Christmas was necessary? And the answer is in another question. Are we that different than these people were? Are we less prone to forget God's love and when things aren't going the way we think they should, doubt his goodness and care? Are we less prone to offer God half-hearted worship that goes through the motions while our hearts are far from him? Are we less prone to ignore his commands? Are we less prone to ask, what's in it for me when it comes to serving God? Do we less than they do a sort of cost-benefit analysis in our minds when it comes to obedience and service. Are we truly less rebellious than the Israelites? What do you think? We read through the Old Testament, don't we just see a mirror? Don't we see ourselves in their rebellion? Don't we see that? Just as Israel wanted to be their own kings and their own gods and make their own way and their own rules, that we do just the same thing. Are we no less self-righteous than they? Thinking we're pretty good and deserving of God's good gifts. Are we, my friend, so different from Malachi's audience? I mean, we may not chase after the veils instead of little statues in our house to pray to, but do we not have our own idols in our politics and our worldly success and sex and sports and hobbies and our kids and our spouses and our bank accounts and our possessions? Are we really that different? Why is Christmas necessary? Because all people are sinners who have rebelled against their loving God and cannot secure their own salvation. That's why. Part of the people's problem in Malachi is that they couldn't evaluate themselves correctly. That's why every time God of all things came with a complaint against them, they had some kind of defense. Surely God was wrong. Surely we are right. Surely God is mistaken. Surely we aren't that bad. Why is Christmas necessary? Because we are that bad. Tim Keller tells of an ad he saw in the New York Times one year. And this is what the ad said. It said, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. In other words, says Keller, we have the light within us, and so we are the ones who can dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. If we work together, we create a world of unity and peace. And then he asks, can we? 
He goes on to say this, despite the sincerity of the Times advertiser, the message of Christmas is not that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Humanity cannot save itself. In fact, the belief that we could save ourselves, that some political system or ideology could fix human problems, has only led to more darkness. Consider another illustration. You guys remember what the people of Whoville sang in their song, You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch? Have you ever paid attention to those lyrics? They said, he's as cuddly as a cactus, as charming as an eel, that his heart is an empty hole, and that his soul is an appalling dump heap. And I got to tell you, if they, if a village sang this about me, I would steal their stuff too. You know what I'm saying? I would steal all their Christmas stuff and I would dump it into a ravine. But is that description that far off from our condition as described in Scripture? Didn't Grinch need to reckon with who he really was if he was going to receive forgiveness and change? Friends, unless we reckon with who we really are in ourselves, we will never understand what Christmas is about. Unless we come to grips with the fact that a loving God has created us, that we spurned his love, and we rebelled against him, we will never understand the point of Christmas, and thus we will never truly receive the gospel. Our age, you will agree with me, is full of self-esteem, and self-help, and sloganeering that does its best to tell us that, at root, we are good people who just need a little improvement. Isn't that true? That our real problem is lack of belief in ourselves. And actually, if we don't want to improve, we're just fine the way we are, and don't let anyone tell you different. We'll do seemingly anything to avoid reckoning with the fact that we are broken sinners, and in of ourselves, We will put as much duct tape over the cracks of our dark hearts to avoid wrestling honestly with the fact that we are helpless rebels at war with our creator. We'll do anything possible. But we must if we are to be rescued. Why? Because only drowning people need to be saved. Only dead people need to be brought to life. If we refuse to accept that we are dead, we'll stay that way. We'd have no need for Christmas at all. See, I know my heart, I know your heart because I know my heart. We all have a little legalist, yes? All of you and your little lawyer in your heart is doing defense right now, isn't it? All of us have this little legalist and this little lawyer in our hearts and want to throw up a defense at this point. Vaughn, I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty good and I'm better actually than a lot of other people that I know. But if that's the case, you either don't know your heart very well or you don't need Christmas. Which is it? As Robert Capone said, he said, Jesus came to call sinners, not the pseudo-righteous. He came to raise the dead, not buy drinks for the marginally alive. If you can't admit you're dead and helpless, you'll stay a zombie who's never rescued. Don't you see? You know, in 1759, a gentleman named Joseph Hart wrote one of my favorite hymns. It's called, Come Ye Sinners. Poor and wretched. That may sound only vaguely familiar to you since you might know it by its more common title, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Needy. See, when Hart wrote it, the title was Poor and Wretched, but there was a move in the 1800s to change wretched to needy. You know why, right? Because who wants to be called wretched? That that makes us uncomfortable. Needy, that sounds more like it, doesn't it? 
It's it's like when some hymnals change amazing grace out this sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me to saved and strengthened me. Or you've heard me mention this one, uh, in Christ alone, they changed on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was magnified. Writing down the change to come, ye sinners, Thomas Kidd said, people who are poor and needy are proper objects of sympathy and pity, but are not necessarily repulsive. The fact that Jesus ready stands to save someone who is poor and needy is perhaps less shocking than his readiness to save a wretch. But the truth is, outside of Christ, we're both needy and wretched. See, no matter what kind of gymnastics and wordsmithing we want to do, the fact remains we are wretches who are poor and needy and deserve the wrath of God, else we don't need Christmas. If what we tell ourselves and one another ad nauseum is true, that we really are at root good people that mean well, that at least we're sincere and try hard, and we do nice things from time to time, and the real problem is that there are few bad apples that make the world dark, then we simply don't need Christmas. We don't need it. If we refuse to realize that we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves and that we are at enmity with a God who loves us, that we have rejected through our sins, then really, Jesus didn't need to come at all. Because if we aren't that bad, we don't need to be saved. We need no rescue. If we're basically good, and at least we mean well, then we could eat and drink for tomorrow we die, and we'll be found to have ended our, earned our way into eternity. No Jesus needed. But if we are who the Bible says we are, if we are separated from a loving God because of our own wicked deeds and self-kingship, then we will be separated from him forever, won't we? What does Malachi 4.1 say? Do you see it? It says there is a day coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branch. That's a scary thought, isn't it? And it echoes what he said in 3.2. He said, who can endure the day of the Lord's coming and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. If we reckon with who we really are, then we will have no choice but to realize that this is our fate if we are left to our own devices. That we are headed to a day that is burning like a furnace because that day is for the wicked and I'm the wicked. It's for the arrogant and I'm the arrogant. And that's bad news. But it must happen if God is a God of justice and if, someone who, and if I am someone who rebelled against him. But it's in this space, don't you see, that we have what Christmas announces. Point number two, what Christmas announces. See, in all this bad news, in all this darkness, you are super bummed out right now. In all this darkness and bad news, confronting the people with their sin and rebellion, confronting you and I with our sin and rebellion, we have a promise in 4-2. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. What Christmas announces is that in the midst of darkness, in the midst of our helplessness, in the midst of our dirtiness, in the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our casting off a God who loves us, in the midst of vain worship, in the midst of our idolatry, in the midst of our self-salvation projects, comes a sun rising with healing in its wings. Because God refuses to give up on people. 
See, even though God would be right and just to crush the people and leave them in their self-propelled darkness, even as he would be good and right to leave us in ours and to send us away, his love compelled him to do something else, to send the son of righteousness to invade the darkness and offer healing to those sitting in darkness. Christmas is announcing that the son of righteousness has come and that the son of righteousness is God himself taking on flesh. Christmas is declaring that just as the sun drives away the darkness and clouds, bringing light and joy so the sun of righteousness will appear to dispel gloom, oppression, and injustice. Christmas is announcing that those who know they're sinners, who know they're actually wretches, who have reached an end to themselves, who are hurting and desperate and lamenting at the darkness both without and within, that they can receive healing. Now and forever, because the sun has dawned in a feeding trough all those years ago. The offer is thus made that if you know you need healing in your soul, the light has come to do just that. This is why, the Christ, why Christ as the son of righteousness is so fitting. What does the sun do for those in darkness? And from whence does it come? It comes from outside. It illumines, it exposes, it heals, and it invigorates. You know, when I was stationed in Alaska, uh, there was a lot of things we had to adjust to. It's like a different country up there. One of the biggest adjustments was the fact that almost half the year is darkness <laughs> for the majority of the day. My job was Air Force Security Forces, so Air Force's version of military police. And what happened in winter months was when there was mostly darkness was people's moods would change. And there would be an uptick in crimes on base. So we'd have more DUIs, we'd have more breaking and enterings, we'd have more assaults and more domestic violence and more attempted suicides. And the darkness had this profound effect on people's psyches. But what was already lurking in people's hearts and minds was brought to the fore because darkness begats darkness. And if we wanted to have more sunlight in those winter months, guess what? We couldn't manufacture it. We, we couldn't create sunlight. We couldn't make the sun shine for us. We just had to wait until the spring when the sun not only would be more visible more often, it would be visible the majority of the day. It was like the opposite of winter. And do you know what happened when the sun came and stayed out? People were different. There was less gloom and less depression and more joy. Jesus' coming in the incarnation on that first Christmas was the sun full of righteousness that came from outside the earth. Man couldn't manufacture the sun. Man couldn't tap into some inner light that he had. He was sitting in darkness. And that darkness begat, guess what? More darkness. Man more and more looked internally into the things of earth to satisfy, but was left empty and depressed and afraid and alone as he continued to hurl rebellion at his God. What he needed then was for the sun to rise, and the only sun that could rise is one outside of the earth. It had to be God coming from the heavenlies to enter into this world and to take on flesh and to shine his rays forth because then there would be healing. Don't you love how this is described? The sun with healing in its wings. Malachi is speaking of how you know how the rays of the sun look like wings. And he says that as they spread and bring forth light, those whom the light touches will be healed. John Calvin said of this verse, he, verse, he gives the name of wings to the rays of the sun, 
And this comparison has much beauty, for it is taken from nature and most fitly applied to Christ. There is nothing we know more cheering and healing than the rays of the sun. For ill savor would soon overwhelm us, even within a day were not the sun to purge the earth from its dregs. And without the sun, there would be no respiration. We also feel a sort of relief at the rising of the sun, for the night is a kind of burden. When the sun sets, we feel, as it were, a heaviness in all our members, and the sick are exhilarated in the morning and experience a change from the influence of the sun, for it brings us healing in its wings. If the bad news of what we said in the first half of the sermon was true concerning our fallen state and our internal darkness and our helplessness and our need for rescue and our total inability to save ourselves, that if we are to be rescued and healed and be given light, it must come from outside of us. It must be true righteousness that shines on us. And the only one who can provide that must be God himself. Come to invade the darkness with the light that comes only from himself. We need healing, yes? We need his light to touch us and bring us life. That's what the sun does, right? Without the sun, there's no life. Without the sun, there's only darkness and gloom and cold and death. But with the light, we have healing and life, and it must cleanse us from inside out or else we'll have no cleansing at all. This is what Christmas is announcing, isn't it? The sun has risen with healing in its wings. That's talking about a person. But not just any person. Only one person could do what Malachi says this son of righteousness does. It must be the God-man. That's how deep our sin is, don't you see? But that's how much we're loved. But see, it doesn't just announce that a Savior is born and light has come. Christmas reminds us that the Son of Righteousness came to take on our darkness so that we could have light. Don't you see that someone is going to the furnace? Someone must pay the price for wickedness. Malachi is telling us that God is unchanging and he is just and a price must be paid for our wickedness and there are only two options for payment. Either we pay it ourselves or someone else pays it and there's only one person who could pay that kind of price on our behalf. It can't be just anyone. It has to be someone who isn't himself guilty and it must be someone who could bear the weight of the wrath of God. It must be the pure son that is untainted by the filthiness of the world. Don't you see that Jesus was burned in the oven of God's wrath for your iniquity? That he was crushed underfoot for your restoration? Without the incarnation, this couldn't happen. Don't you realize that? John Piper said this, the incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. The incarnation is a preparation for a, a brow for thorns to press through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there was a place for the spikes. He needed to have a side so that there was a place for the sword to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas would have a place to kiss and there would be a place for spit to run down that soldiers put on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no gall so that the exquisiteness of the pain could be fully felt for you. Don't you see? 
Christmas is telling us that we need light because we are in darkness. We need light because we need security from dangers lest we fall off a cliff. We need light to illumine the darkness and reveal all the creeping things both in our hearts and in the world so that we come to grips with our depravity and helplessness. We need the beams of righteousness to shine on our unrighteousness and overtake it. We need beams of healing to shine and make us whole, to clean us, to make us new and refreshed. We need Jesus because he's the only son of righteousness that will do. For he's the only son of righteousness that there is. R.G. Lee said this on the incarnation. He said, Christ, who in eternity, listen to this and let it soak. Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the father's bosom and in time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom, clasping the ancient of days who had become the infant of days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the glory place. He said, in Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms, no place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of creator, born of the creature woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. So deep was our sin that it took nothing less than God in flesh to descend and become a squalling baby among farm animals who would grow and live a perfect life and die the death we deserve to die, like entering into a burning furnace of wrath to save us and bring us light. But so deep was the love of God that he was happy and willing to do it. Indeed, it was his plan even before the foundations of the world. And Malachi thinks, and I wonder if you agree with him, that such an incredible reality should be met with a special kind of reaction. Doesn't he think that? What does he say in verse 2? And you will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall. He says extravagant grace needs an extravagant response. Indeed, can one come to grips with their sin and darkness and have any other reaction to the news that the Son of Righteousness has dawned? Now, last year I came across what has become an article I think I'll turn to every Christmas. It was written to this fellow named Joseph Bottom, and he tells about how he had a friend, his godly friend, who was tired of the commercialization of Christmas. And to keep his attention focused, Bottom's friend, to keep his attention focused on the purpose of Christmas, what he does is he just gets one small branch, goes outside, gets a small little branch, he puts it in a pot every year to make sure he doesn't get distracted by all the trappings of extravagance at Christmas with a decoration and a celebration. Bottom says this is commendable. It's commendable that you want to stay away from the commercialization. But he says it's also wrong. Listen to what he says. He says, give me the vulgarity of inflated reindeer bobbing on the lawn. Give me trees drooping under the weight of their ornaments. Give me snow piled to the rafters. Give me houses so lit up that the neighbors dream at night of sunstroke. Fruitcakes so dense they threaten to develop their own black hole event horizons. 
Gingerbread cottages and mouse king nutcrackers and wreaths on every door and silly Christmas cards and eggnog so nutmeg that the school children carolers cough and sputter as they try manfully to gulp it down. He says, tastefulness is just small-mindedness pretending to be art. And Christmas isn't tasteful. Isn't simple. Isn't clean. Isn't elegant. Give me the tacky and the exuberant and the wild to represent the impossibly boisterous fact that God has intruded in this world. Yes, Christmas has been over-commercialized. Yes, we can be distracted very easily from the point of Christmas, but there's something very right in what Bottom is saying because what are we supposed to do with the truth that God came into the world? What are we supposed to do with the fact that everything Malachi says is true of us and our hearts, but we have been offered rescue in the most cataclysmic event in history? That we've been offered light, healing, and reconciliation to our God. This fact swallows up everything else, doesn't it? Or it should, at least. Such extravagant truth, such an incredible life and all eternity-changing fact should be met with a response that throws tastefulness and tact and introversion right out the window. Because it should make us leap like calves out of a stall, feeling the beams of the sun for the first time. You know, but here's the thing, right? Sometimes it's hard to leak, isn't it? The fact remains, as people, as the people in Malachi's day live in the darkness of expectation for the first advent, we live in expectation for the second advent. We relate to the people in Malachi, not just because of sin and rebellion, but because sometimes the world seems pretty dark. And we still feel the weight of sin. And we still feel the weight of injustice. And we still feel the pain of loss. You know, for some... Christmas is painful. Maybe there's a chair that used to be filled but will now be empty. Maybe there's so much to do that we don't feel joy, we feel overwhelmed and burdened. Maybe Christmas will be painful because of broken relationships and disappointment. Maybe we'll look at pictures of put-together families on social media and wish ours were that picturesque. Maybe we dread it because we know there will be a fight or tension. Maybe looming is the end of one year that was hard and we don't anticipate the next year being much better. Maybe we know the truths of Christmas, but we have a hard time leaping like a calf. To this, the son of righteousness knows and sees and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And if you don't feel like leaping like a calf, you can bask in my beams and know that one day you will leap like no one's ever leapt before. Don't you see? You may not leap right now because you feel the weight of being between Advents, but you must realize, beloved of God, the second Advent is coming. You must know and be reminded that the people of Malachi's day were supposed to look forward to Messiah's dawning with hope and thus live with obedient expectation, knowing that just because they couldn't see God working, that didn't mean he wasn't. You must be reminded at Christmas that the sun has dawned and he will come again, and that's the hope that you're supposed to grip. When you have no strength to grip anything else. Surely you know the song that we're going to sing just in a a few minutes. Hark the herald angels sing. Has a line in it from Malachi 4.2, doesn't it? That says, hail the heaven born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Now reflecting on this, Johnny Erickson Tata, who was 
you might know, was paralyzed from the neck down when she was 17. She was thinking about Hark the Herald, and she wrote this. Listen to what she says. She says, there's a reason this verse from my favorite Christmas carol means so much to me. Every time I sing the part about healing in his wings, I choke up. Many years ago, I thought it meant Jesus would heal me physically. I remember thinking, surely this Christmas, he's going to raise me up out of this wheelchair. Little did I know that in due time, God would heal me, but in a way I never, ever dreamed possible. Because two years later on another Christmas, I found contentment and joy, simply because I found that I could embrace his will for my life. And what is his will? That we put ourselves in the best position and the best place in which God can most be glorified. In another place, she said that the first thing she will do when she meets Jesus face to face with her glorified body and resurrected legs is to drop on a grateful, glorified knee before him. And I imagine that after that, she'll leap and jump and dance like she's always dreamed. Christmas says the son of righteousness has come with healing in his wings and announces the offer of forgiveness and grace and healing and reconciliation and imputed righteousness and absorbed wrath. It announces you are loved, says the Lord. It announces you should leap like calves now because of this truth, but especially you will leap in the future. Christmas announces that hope has dawned and is dawned in a person and his name is Jesus and he is the Christ. This means no matter how dark life can be at times, and it can be dark, we're meant to run back to the feeding trough that housed the Savior of the world and follow it up to Calvary's hill and then to an empty tomb and up to the new heavens and new earth that awaits those who have given the true king their allegiance. That's what Christmas is about. Allow me to read this from Andrew Wilson. He said on this passage, Son of Righteousness, he said, it's a beautiful image. The return of the king, when he comes, will prompt the kind of joy that a songbird feels at a dawn or a photographer feels at sunrise. It will feel like the whole world is being healed by the beams of celestial light. It will bring the abandon and gaiety that you see in newborn lambs and calves when they skip from their barns into spring fields in the morning mingled with a relief experienced by emperor penguins when the sun finally breaks through at the end of an Arctic winter. You will want to dance for joy because the long-awaited day of sunshine has come. So every Christmas we sing about it and remind ourselves of the brightness that has broken into our darkness. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings.